Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Hello, welcome to another episode of Lost in Science. It is science on the radio. It is a joyous time to be science, isn't it? Is it not, um, Stu and Claire? Yeah, look, I, I think it is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, to be science, well, to, to be talking to about be talking science. about science. Yeah, yeah. To, to be scientists, to be lost in, in science. Way. To be lost in science. Yeah. Yes. Um, now, my name is Chris, and speaking of getting lost in science, I I am going to be talking about something you may have seen, some science that was reported recently in the the media, the the non us media. Um, that was about a, a study claiming that vegetarians have an increased risk of stroke. I don't know if you saw that in the news. I think I missed that one. No, it was something that got a bit of attention and it, it irked me because mm. it, I thought it was misrepresenting the actual study and, and people were jumping to conclusions. It's one of those things that I think cheapens science a little bit. So I'm, gonna, I'm just going to have a bit of a pick on that, a bit of a rant. Are you going to be myth myth busting? Myth busting. I am going to be <laughs> myth busting. <laughs> anyway, uh, Claire, what have you got for us? Um, well, I am going deep into the rivers of the Amazon, not to talk about what um, has been on the news in regards to the Amazon rainforest and the fires there, but some news recently that two new species of electric eel have been discovered and um, and described by science. So um, not only are they newly described, but they're actually produce a more powerful electric shock than um, has ever been recorded before. Let's be honest, that's what we want out of our electric eels, is more powerful electric shocks. Right, exactly, exactly. What else would you expect from an electric eel, really? That's right. <laughs> what can we expect from you, Stu? Um, well, I'm actually uh, trying to dive into the Fountain of Youth uh, this week. Watch I'm... out for the electric eels was... in the Fountain of Youth, Stu. Look, I was wondering why Stu looked so kind of crisp and <laughs> fresh today. Yeah. Are you Benjamin buttoning over there, Stu? No, I just um, I just brushed my hair. <laughs> oh, had a shave. Be <laughs> simple. Um, no, I'm, I'm actually looking into some, some real live research into trying to uh, address the issues associated with ageing, which are, you know, pretty much inescapable for all of us, um, along with Pretty taxes. much, you say? Well, you know. There, there are things you can do to, to try and prolong your life, but most people don't want to sign up for that. They want something simple, <laughs> and that's what they're looking to science to give them, is a simple answer to stop them getting old, pretty much. So I'm going to be looking at what people have done uh, to do exactly that later in the show. On with the show. Yes, you are listening to Lost in Science. As I said, I'm going to be looking at um, eh, some less good science reporting. Um, you may have seen in the news recently uh, headlines in the newspaper. I found one that said, Vegans are stroke risk. That was like the big, in big letters. Um, there was a report on the TV news saying, Meat can stay on the menu now. Um, all that kind of stuff. Uh-huh. And basically, it's, it's based on a study that um, 
showed an association between being vegetarian or vegan and an increased risk of stroke. Also, so the reporting said, I'm going to look into that a bit closer and see what actually really said. I think that they've kind of sold the wrong message, I guess is what I'm trying to say with this particular study. So the study involved in particular, it was a study published in the BMJ. That's what it's apparently officially called now. It used to be the British Medical Journal, now it's just the BMJ. Mm. Mm. Anyway, the study was called Risks of Ischemic Heart Disease and Stroke in Meat Eaters, Fish Eaters and Vegetarians Over 18 Years of Follow-Up. Uh, it used data from a study called the European Prospective Investigation into Cancer, or EPIC, Oxford study. Um, so what they did, they had 48,188 people who they followed up between the years 1993 and 2001. About 24,000 of them were meat eaters. 7,500 were fish eaters, like pescatarians. They, they yeah. ate fish but didn't eat meat. And about 16,000 were vegetarians or vegans. Um, they did kind of track vegetarians and vegans separately, but for the purposes of the data in this paper, the vegans were a small enough number that they couldn't do good analysis on them. So, so they, they just included it as vegetarians. They included them together, yeah. Right. Now, the biggest finding, the headline finding from this, this paper was that uh, vegetarians had a much lower risk of heart disease. That was basically the, the main conclusion. They had 22% lower chance of having heart disease if you're wow, vegetarian. Wow, that's, that's huge. Yeah. Kind of makes sense. I mean, certainly that's the advice they've been giving for years is eat less meat and dairy and you'll have yeah. a low, lower risk of heart disease. Yeah. So. But that's right. That's yeah. like that's old news. That's and really old news. Not terribly interesting. So <laughs> the headlines are about there an apparent twenty percent higher risk of stroke if you are a vegetarian. That's what's caught the news, which is why they're yeah. saying eat all the meat you want; it'll protect you from stroke. Don't worry about the heart disease. Um, is is it actually to do with that, that they're living longer because they're not getting heart disease and and that puts them at a higher risk of stroke or look, something like it's that? It's not clear what's going on. Um, that's the thing. So I thought we'd have a look at what it actually means. And there is a lot to unpack in all of this. Well, there are a few things to consider with the type of study. One thing is this is a prospective study where they get people to say at the start of it what their diet is, at the end of it what their diet is. Yeah, maybe you have a couple of follow-ups. So you're relying on self-reporting. You're relying on kind of trying to work out what people actually ate and then draw conclusions to that. So it's not a causal thing. You're just looking at associations and you, yeah, it's, it's sort of preliminary stuff. But the main thing is when you're looking at any of these kind of medical studies, you look at the statistical significance of the actual finding. Yeah. Yep. So in this case, the increased stroke risk of vegetarians barely made it as statistically significant. So on average, there was a 20% higher risk of having a stroke if you're vegetarian or vegan. Um, but the, the confidence interval, which is like the, the range that you're 95% sure the actual real numbers in with that range, was between a 2% increase and a 40% increase. Now, so it just barely scrapes through into what they consider statistically yeah. significant. If that, if that, that um, interval crossed zero, the zero mark, then you'd say, oh, well, it's not a real result. Yeah. Um, and this just made it over the line. So it's not a very strong result, I suppose. Whereas the, the lowered risk of heart disease was a really strong result from the studies. That was a really, very strong, very could be confident of, and it's consistent with lots of other studies, whereas the increased stroke risk is kind of like, oh, it's interesting, but, you know, it's kind of, we need more studies to back this up. Um, also, this this uh, this increase that they found was they had to do some statistical analysis to get this. They had to correct for factors like uh, like the age of people, uh, socioeconomic factors, um, smoking, alcohol consumption, and a few other things like that. Like if you look at the raw numbers, then the vegetarians actually had fewer strokes than the meat eaters. But when you do all these statistical corrections, then it it evens out a bit. So fewer strokes per capita is that what they're yeah, yeah essentially yeah you know per number that they've included in the yeah study. that's right yeah right. But when you correct for these other factors, accounting for the fact that basically vegetarians generally live a healthier lifestyle, 
then it's it's less exciting. Right. Yeah. Um, what else is there? The the similar data has been used for our previous studies that have shown that. Like, if you look at this one, it tells you that maybe vegetarians have more strokes, or likely to have more strokes, but they don't have a greater risk of dying from a stroke. So mortality, which is one of the big things that people look at, is not statistically significant. Mm. So what I'm saying is there's not a lot kind of to, to worry about and say, oh, I better eat lots of meat to try and protect me, um, because the role is not very strong. But it still indicates there probably is something going on. There is something interesting perhaps happening, and they do speculate that what could be actually happening to cause this, this result they got. Now, one of the things that, to understand that, you have to drill down to look at the different types of strokes that they are. So there are two types of strokes you can have. There is an ischemic stroke, and that's where a clot blocks the blood supply to your brain. And then there's a hemorrhagic stroke where a blood vessel bursts and it bleeds all over the place. Now, the ischemic strokes, that are the blood clots, they're normally, they're much more common. Um, but in this case, it was the, the hemorrhagic stroke, which was that the vegetarians had a higher risk of. That's where the kind of the statistically significant risk was in the hemorrhagic strokes. And again, it's not clear why that is the case. I mean, the biggest risk for this kind of stroke is high blood pressure, but the vegetarians and the vegans generally had lower blood pressure, so that doesn't seem to be the factor. Mm. Um, There is some indication that uh, low cholesterol levels are associated with an increased risk of uh, hemorrhagic stroke. And they did have lower cholesterol levels, yeah, vegetarians and vegans. Um, and there could also be other nutrients that they were deficient in. So they, they had a greater chance of things like vitamin B12 deficiency, which is a known thing that you often have to take supplements if you're on a, a vegan diet. So look, there's a, possible, there's a few possible explanations. But I think all of a sudden, have got to remember that they didn't actually die more from these strokes mm. when we look at the, the overall numbers. Uh, and they had lower levels of heart disease, which is kind of more common and more dangerous. It's a bigger killer. It's a bigger killer. Yeah. It's a bigger risk. So yeah, and then when you add in the, 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 the known associations now of red meat and cancer, it's really not saying that um, we're suddenly declaring meat is, is fine to eat. But look, um, I will mention, though, that the dietary guidelines do allow for small levels of red meat consumption. And I think the important thing is whatever your overall dietary philosophy, it's important to make sure that you get a balance of the nutrients you need. As we've seen here, you know, if you have a deficiency, you have to look out for those sort of things. Mm. You have to make sure you're getting the balance of all the correct nutrients so that you can have a healthy lifestyle. Traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. That's the signpost up ahead. Your next stop. Lost in science. So, what do you think, Carl Linnaeus? Obviously, Carl was the father of modern zoological and botanical nomenclature. What do you think he was doing in 1766? <laughs> classifying everything in sight. He was. He was classifying everything in sight, including the electric eel. So for the last 250 years, uh, we've taken it on uh, Carl's good word that there is, in fact, only one species of electric eel. Did, uh, did he find the electric eel? He classified the electric okay. eel. But it turns out that two things in that sentence are wrong. Um, electric eels are not actually eels. They're, they're not. A, no, they're a type of knife fish. Um, are not eels a type of fish anyway? Yeah, but they're not in the eel family. The anguillae family. 
No, they're not in it. Okay. They ain't in it, Chris. Okay. Uh, they're a type of knife fish and um, they can grow a lot longer than your typical eel can. Okay. So they grow to about two and a half metres Two and a half metres, the electric eel can. And as we learnt in last week's episode of the Loch Ness Monster, <laughs> eels do not generally grow that long. That's right. Yeah. 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 Um, this week on Eel News, <laughs> <laughs> electric eels aren't eels. Last eels week. Science. Eels <laughs> in science. Yeah. Eels in yeah. science. All right. And secondly, there is actually three different species of electric eel, not just one lonely Species that Carl Linnaeus reported and described um, hanging out in the Electrophorus genus. There is three species. Um, this is newly reported research this week. And what else has been reported is that one of these species can deliver a record electric shock, larger than any electric shock ever recorded by an electric eel or knife fish. I'm just going to go with electric eel, even though we know it's a knife fish. Yeah. All right, great. So ever recorded by an electric eel um, before. So it is. it comes in at 860 volts versus the previously hurled record of 650 volts. So there you go. That's high pretty voltage. good. It's pretty danger, high voltage. Danger, danger, so eel should, voltage. Should I be concerned about these electric eels, Sam? Um, knife fish? Don't be too concerned. Um, it... Um, with that sort of voltage, it um, it affects its surroundings in a fairly localised manner. So electric eels use their electric capabilities in many circumstances. They actually have uh, two types of electric discharges. Uh, they have a strong and a weak. So these are used in different ways and are actually produced by different parts of their electric producing organs. So um, most of the electric eel's body uh, is made up of these electric organs. You've got uh, the aptly named main organ. You've got something (laughs) called the hunter's organ. And then you've got sax organ as well, like S-A-C-H. Not S-A-X, because that's a different kind of electric organ (laughs) that you play tunes on. That's right, yeah. So the strong um, discharges, the strong electric discharge helps electric eels in hunting, capturing prey, um, helps them in defence as well. And then the weaker uh, electric discharge, which is around 10 volts or so, allows them to electrolocate and also communicate with one another. Other fish can do that too, can't they? They use electric electric signals to signal to each other and things. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And there are other fish that um, are electric in more ways than just signaling. There oh. are electric uh, rays and electric... <laughs> <laughs> and sharks are a bit electric, aren't they? And sharks um, are electric, can be not, can not, use electricity as well, but n- not in the same way. Oh, they don't, like, deliver shocks because no. they've got enough going on. Like, got- <laughs> you don't want a shark to be electric as well as bitey. <laughs> Uh, so the way that researchers found out about this was they got up close and personal with over the period of six years and collected 107 electric eel specimens from across the Amazon basin, obviously taking extreme care when handling these Just electric eels. Rubber gloves. Rubber gloves. Obviously. Obviously. Oh, but they're slippery. <laughs> yeah. Well, they are. Is that a pun? Well, no, because no, they are. Slippery as an eel. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they have that weird mucus on the outside of them. Have mm. you ever caught an eel? 
I've caught this an eel. This is different eel. I haven't caught an eye fish. No, you haven't caught an eye fish. I haven't either. I haven't no. been fishing in the Amazon. Anyway, um, I want to introduce you to our new electric eel friends and friends of the family. Uh, we have the three new species to meet. We've got the OG electric eel, the original. That is Electrophorus electricus. So it was previously thought to live in freshwater uh, rivers throughout most of South America and the Amazon. But it turns out electricus lives in a much more isolated position called the Guinea Shield. So up in the northeast of South America, the top northeast corner of South America. We then have Electrophorus voltae, which is one of the newly described species, and it tends to be found in the waters of northern Brazil, or as they, it's called, the Brazilian Shield. Notice the name, voltae. This is actually the eel that gives the biggest electric shock with right. 860 volts. So obviously not, it deserves the name yeah, not voltae. Just a, not just a clever name. Not just a, cle- mm. not just a clever name. And the third eel is Electrophorus vari, V-A-R-I-I, which you will find in the lowland Amazon basin. So they are geographically distinct. Um, There's a difference where you can find them, but to look at them, they're fairly similar, which is why up until now we thought they were all the one species. It's only when you start looking at their DNA that you can really start to see these lineages emerge And researchers looked at their mitochondrial and their nuclear DNA and found that, in fact, the electricus and the voltae are more closely related than the vari. So the ones in the Guinea shield and the Brazilian shield that actually are more electrified, they're more closely related. So there you go. So finding two new species of eels is, um, I think, big news, especially with all the reporting of the impact that humans have had on the Amazon, this particular unique part of the world. Uh, It's incredibly important to know how much diversity is out there, not only for conservation reasons, but also potentially for our own technological advancement. Um, It was the electric eel that inspired the design of Volta's first electric battery to provide constant current, Eels have been fundamental in treating neurodegenerative diseases and most recently the electric eel encouraged the development of synthetic cells equipped with natural nanoconductors and also a hydrogel battery that could be used to power medical implants. So I say more power to the new electric eel family. Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science. Oscar Wilde and George Bernard Shaw have been credited with saying youth is wasted on the young, uh, although neither of them seems likely to have actually said that anywhere because it's not in any of their writing, either of them or anyone else's. It just seems to have come Oh, into... it's just one of those anonymous quotes. Yeah, just sort been... of first tracked down in the, in the 1900s, so mm. not even that old apparently. Um, but the sentiment does show a recognisable desire in older people to have the abilities of their young selves again uh, when they can fully appreciate how much can be achieved by young people. So like, oh, all those things I could have done when I was young, I didn't do because I was young and didn't realise how cool it was to be young, basically. Um, Probably uncoincidentally, legends of a fountain of youth can be found 
in many cultures, dating back thousands of years to ancient philosophers like Herodotus and also more recent examples uh, from all over the world, really. And even, you know, thousands of products claim to reverse aging from face creams and cosmetics to various fad diets. And of course, the ever-increasing list of superfoods is not a week goes by when something isn't being claimed something to else be jumps on the list. a new superfood, which is going to make you young again. Not red meat, though. We just I think we already... Yeah, not that, that one. Yeah. Not Rule that, that one. out. But as far as science goes, there are many medical ways to ward off the effects of aging, um, but most of them are not very popular because they involve things like sensible diets and increased exercise. Uh, and people don't really want to do that because it, it's, it sounds like a lot of work. Uh, what everybody really wants is a simple pill they could take that would allow them to live longer without having to muck around with all that healthy living stuff. Um, something just to reverse the aging process, basically. So a scientist called Gregory M. Fay from a Los Angeles company called Intervene Immune may have discovered just such a thing but not exactly on purpose. So he's a bioenterologist, uh, and he was looking for a way to stop the thymus gland from shrinking. Do you know what the thymus gland does? No. What does the thymus gland do? Okay, so in, uh, in mammals, uh, it's involved in immunity. So it helps stimulate the growth of T cells, which are the oh. cells that go out and fight disease in your body, viruses and things like that. Is it um, where, where is it in our body? Uh, it's sort of in your chest cavity. Um, so it also helps prevent autoimmune diseases. But unlike most organs, it is at its largest in children. Right. And it actually shrinks after puberty and loses some of its functions. So the older you get... The less thymus you have, basically. <laughs> thymus activity. The thymus oh, the actually thymus. shrinks oh, and wow. gets smaller oh, wow. over time. It replaces the functional thymus cells with fat and just other tissue. Mm. So in 1988, old mice were transplanted with thymus glands from young mice and had measurably improved health functions. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> uh, probably not. So for the young mice who they took the glands out of, but that was a pretty interesting result That's from the uh, experimental data. Um, but the question of whether the thymus in humans um, could be slowed down in its deterioration or even actively gr- regrown is one that researchers have been looking at for some time, well, since the 80s, basically, when they found that in mice. So Dr. Fay was trying to reverse the decline of the thymus and possibly increase its size by administering a cocktail of medication to a handful of patients aged between 51 and 65. So he grabbed a bunch of older white men, basically, and said, here, take all of this stuff. Um, So the medication treatment included growth hormones as well as diabetes medication to counter the likelihood of diabetes as a side effect of the hormones, which they kind of expected because they've found this in the past. If you give people growth hormones, it tends to accelerate diabetes or the onset of diabetes. So they gave them anti-diabetes medication as well as the other stuff. Um, And after a year of giving themselves these treatments, the cellular age of the men was measured um, and they're all Caucasian males, so there was good data to back up the way that they measured it. And on a cellular level, they had grown younger. So they can actually measure the age and the uh, life expectancy of cells based on the chromosomes in cells. 
And what they'd found is that those chromosomes appeared younger in these men after doing this for a year. Um, so it wasn't anything physically observable to the naked eye or anything like that, but on a biochemical level, they'd actually reversed in age. So chemical markers in white blood cell samples from after the trials were two and a half years younger than what they were before the trials. They also found that the age reversal increased in speed after nine months of taking the medication. So there was a slow effect early on, and then after nine months to the end of the one-year period, it got faster and faster. So they were, their cells were getting younger quicker the longer they took these medications. Um, and the concurrently measured increase in life expectancy was sustained after the trial completed. So when they stopped taking the medication the change stayed in their cells. Their, st their cells stayed younger than what they had been. So, uh, so obviously this is a really preliminary result. There was 10 participants in the trial. Um, it was published in the journal Aging Cell. Uh, and it didn't... It seems appropriate. Yeah, well, it's, that's specialist journals, obviously. Yeah. Science, we love that in science. Uh, but it didn't even have an untreated control group. So they, they right. don't really have anything to compare it to. They just went, wow, this is really incredible because it was across the board. Why, why, why didn't they? Uh, well, because it was just a preliminary right. trial, basically. They were, just, they, were, they were actually setting out to do something else, which is what they, uh, you know, was actually to do with the thymus. They weren't looking at all this other stuff. They just tested it anyway because they had the... The, uh, the, the participants available. Um, and there was no uh, analysis of other lifestyle changes in the participants either. So they didn't check if they changed their diet or did more exercise or anything like that. So there might be other factors involved. And you can, you know, the age group was 51 to 65. It's kind of when people do really start thinking, oh, maybe I should be a bit more healthy and do all those sorts of things. So that needs to be uh, addressed as well because we've known for a long time that you can change... Uh, or slow the aging process by making lifestyle changes as well. And it also doesn't necessarily follow that improved molecular age estimates uh, is the same as, um, you know, actual real-life health benefits. Just because your cells appear younger doesn't mean you're going to be instantly healthier as a result. Um, but the basic question of the investigation restoring thymus function in older humans was positively observed. So they'd already observed that in dogs and in mice with similar hormone treatments that they actually reversed the decline of the thymus in the, in the animal models. Uh, and that's what they observed in humans as well. So by giving them the growth hormone treatments, they had actually reversed the aging of the thymus, which meant, you know, means potentially um, that could be a breakthrough in immune-related healthcare for older people in the future because without your thymus, you start being more susceptible to immune issues and get mm. sicker more often and all that sort of stuff so it is an interesting study but it is you know fairly limited as well but um it's probably not quite the fountain of youth just yet but it's something to sort of maybe uh listen out for in the future and that is it for another episode of Lost in Science. Lost in Science is, of course, recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and it airs across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Uh, if you'd like to get in touch with us, 
we would love you to do so. You can email us at lostinsci at gmail.com or you can find us on Facebook. We are Lost in Science on 3CR. We are also on Twitter. We are at Lost in Science 1. Uh, or you can find us on a podcasting app of your choice. If you uh, do find us on a podcasting app and you're able to give us a review, then please do so. Give us a good rating. That will help lift us up in the search rankings and other people will be able to find us better. I don't know how that works. Something, some sort of podcast magic um or you can listen to us on the radio when the same time every week claire Stu, and chris get lost in science thanks for listening to a 3cr podcast 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.